Welcome, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Vonsio, covering the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting here today with the Penguins in a in an episode where it's another two-segment hockey talk day. Not really much going on with football, so NHL is in season right now, and we're going to start with Sidney Crosby, who played in his 1,000th career game Saturday night. Now, for Crosby, for his teammates, for the fans, this was a very emotional night for almost everybody involved. And it just it just doesn't seem possible that Crosby has played a thousand games for the Penguins already. I mean, he's been a penguin for my entire not well, not my entire life, but for as long as I can remember. I mean, he was drafted just 11 days before my fourth birthday. And so with that in mind, it's just, it's hard to imagine the Penguins without Crosby. And I feel as if a lot of Penguins fans have underappreciated Sidney Crosby. Not because they don't think he's a good hockey player, but because they're focusing so much on what he has not accomplished and they're not looking at what he has accomplished. You know, there's so many people that talk about Crosby and it's, well, what if he did this? And what if he won this trophy? And I don't understand that. Why not say, look at how, look at Crosby winning three Stanley Cups or look at the number of MVPs awards he's won. I mean, look at it from that perspective and not what he hasn't accomplished. And so that's why I think all of these, not all of these, but some Penguins fans really underappreciate Sidney Crosby. Which, in a way, is sad because he is a generational talent, not only for the Penguins, but for every fan in the NHL. Without a doubt, a Hall of Famer. And he's just such a great person on and off the ice. He's heavily involved in charity work, helping out in the community, and he puts the team ahead of himself so much, time and time again. He sacrifices his body almost every shift with the amount of work he puts in defensively for the Penguins. You know, there's a reason why Crosby is considered one of the best defensive forwards 
in the National Hockey League. And it's because of the amount of work that he puts in to help his team and do so in a way that then allows them to transition and attack the opponent. Now, I don't know if anybody else got this vibe from Saturday. And I know that this was not how the Penguins organization wanted it to seem. But celebrating a thousand games for Crosby, it really started to feel like it was the beginning of the end. And I know that's something not many, if any, Penguins fans want to think about, but it's just something that something about that tribute video, everybody congratulating Crosby on a thousand games. It all just felt like, I don't know, it just felt like he was on the down path of his career and like it was a countdown until he retired so I know it was supposed to be a happy celebration a congratulatory thing for Crosby as he's the first penguin to ever reach a thousand games but just something about it did not give that happy vibe. I don't know what it was, if it was a combination of the tribute video, everybody in tears, just something about it. And I know Crosby is nowhere near done playing. Yes, he is 34 years old. But he has shown this season that he can still perform at a very high level, both offensively and defensively. He's still scoring points. He's still helping track back. He's still finding the most creative passes I've ever seen, like his one-two with... Kasperi Kapanen a few games ago. I mean, that was just absolutely incredible. And for someone who is 34 years old, or it's just, it's just mind-boggling that he is able to do that. Or in this case, someone like Crosby who is almost 34 years old as he will officially turn 34 in August. Jumping the gun a little bit here, making him seem a little older than he actually is right now by about five months, five and a half months. So I apologize, Sydney, not trying to make you seem older than you actually are. But I mean, let's face it. He's on the wrong side of 30. And while he has many more years to play, 
it's not a matter of, oh, well, we still have Crosby for another 10 years. Unless he plays as long as Yarmil Yager, who is currently still playing over in Europe, that's just not going to happen. And who knows how long it will take for the Penguins to get another player as talented as Crosby has been and continues to be. I'm going to be straight up honest with you all. The day I look at my phone and I see a notification that says Sidney Crosby is retiring from the NHL, the only place you will find me is in my bedroom crying my eyes out. I mean, like so many fans for the Penguins around the league, Crosby has been and still is my favorite player. Like I said, I grew up watching this guy. I remember my first Penguins jersey was Sidney Crosby. You know, one of those cheap 60 70 maybe even $80 Reebok jerseys for kids. Yeah, I had one of those for Crosby. And I've considered getting one of the reverse retro jerseys of Crosby. But I just don't know how much longer he's going to play. Do I hope he plays for another six years? Yes. But if the team performances don't go the way that the organization or himself would want them to, I don't know what would happen in that situation. But to top it all off Saturday night, Crosby had two assists in the 3-2 win over the New York Islanders, which I'm going to talk about that game now. And I just want to throw out here that of the last seven games that the Penguins have played against the New York Islanders, six of them have been a one-goal game. The exception to that stat was the 4-1 to win that the Penguins had over the Islanders very recently. I mean, it was just Monday that I was talking about this big win. And so that the six of this, those last seven games that I mentioned, that takes the Penguins back to the dreadful playoff series against the Islanders. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Since that playoff series, six of the last seven games against them have been one goal games. And if I remember correctly, I believe the Penguins are four and three or possibly five and two in those games against the Islanders. These teams always put in hard battles against each other. And Saturday night was no exception. However, the Islanders significantly outplayed the Penguins Saturday night. The shot totals in this game were 35 to 18 in favor of the Islanders. And yes, you heard that correctly. The Penguins had 18 shots 
over 60 minutes of hockey. That stat right there is absolutely embarrassing to only obtain 18 shots in a hockey game. I mean, that's basically half of what the Islanders accumulated. I'm not expecting 40 to 45 shots per game. Would that be amazing if the Penguins could do that? Absolutely. But they they have to find a way to get the puck on goal more than 18 times a game. Especially when the Islanders were leading in shots 16 to 4 after the first period Saturday night. Four shots through 20 minutes when your opponents quadrupled the amount of shots you've taken. That is absolutely pathetic. And the Penguins were lucky to get out of that period 0-0. It was said on the broadcast by Steve Mears and Bob Barry. It was blatantly visible to myself watching this game that the Penguins scraped by by the skin of their teeth to not be down in that game after the first period. The Islanders were the ones who brought the energy and brought the tempo in that game. They controlled it all, and they took it to the Penguins the way that any team should have. Because the way the Penguins played in that game, especially the first period, was so poor. I don't know if it was because of the celebration and everybody being happy for Crosby, but also like shocked that he played a thousand games and the idea in their heads of, wow, we've really seen the best of Crosby and we're on limited time now. I don't know, but something was not right with that Penguins team in the first period. And I usually don't say this about a hockey game, but the Islanders deserved to win this game by a minimum of two to three goals. I'm not even going to lie when I say that. I mean, as I've said already, 18 shots over 60 minutes, the Penguins looked really lethargic, slow, turning the puck over. I mean, it was terrible. And they somehow found a way to win and squeak three goals past Samon Varlamov. I mean, obviously I credit the Penguins for winning that game with not performing very well, but they cannot play like that, ideally, again this season. I mean, there are going to be times where they play poor. Don't get me wrong. But it's something that needs to be done 
as minimal as possible. And I will say in that game Saturday night, it was great to see Latang finally getting on the score sheet and burying two past Varlamov. But the highlight of this game for me was Tristan Jolly because especially with that first period, he stole the game for the Penguins. He's the reason why they were even in a position to win that game. Shutting out the Islanders in that first period with all 16 shots against him. Some were very high caliber chances. And without Jolly, the Penguins for sure would have lost that game. Again, by a minimum of two or three goals. Because he stood on his head and played his tail off, which is something we have yet to see from Tristan Jolly this season. And you have to wonder now if, other than in back-to-back situations, if Casey Smith is ever going to see the crease again. Because Tristan Jolly has just been an entirely different level of solid. And this is the jury that everybody knew was there. Somewhere it was there, but it's now been found. And I hope that he can continue to perform this way for quite a while, whether that be a few weeks, a few months into the Stanley Cup playoffs, and then ideally a few years or even longer. I mean, Tristan Jolly is very young still. He's going to be with the Penguins for quite a long time. Now, these last four games, he's not going to be able to continue at that pace. But for a goalie who is only 25 years old, he is capable of performing at a very high level consistently for five to seven years or even longer as you're seeing people like Marc-Andre Fleury still perform very well for the Vegas Golden Knights. And he's 36, I believe. So it's possible that you could see Jolly perform well for another 10 years. And as a Penguins fan, you would absolutely love that. I mean, at that point, the Penguins could be Stanley Cup winning contenders or Stanley Cup, a Stanley Cup winning team or a consistent Stanley Cup contender. After players like Crosby, Malkin, Latang are gone. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the games this weekend for the National Hockey League at Lake Tahoe and the future of them right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
Hi, I'm Julian McGee. I hope you can tune into my show, League Talk, where we discuss the latest news from the NBA. Every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 p.m. here on Deviant Online Radio. And a lot of people thought it was just about my parents, but it's about 99% of the parents alive or half dead. One, two, three, four. I know this pain. Why do you lock yourself up in these chains?
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for more hockey talk, talking about the games that were t- at Lake Tahoe this weekend. And I want to start just by recapping them in case you were unable to tune into those. And the first one on Saturday was between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Colorado Avalanche, with the one on Sunday being played between the Philadelphia Flyers and the Boston Bruins. Now, the game with Colorado and Vegas got off to a very rough start because the first period was very sunny, which is something that was unexpected for this weekend. So much so that the goaltenders had to wear sunglasses under their masks to be able to see the puck because there was such a huge glare on the ice. So these goaltenders were experiencing something that has never been experienced before. And it was very noticeable in the first period that, especially in the beginning, Marc-Andre Fleury was having a nightmare when it came to tracking the puck. There was one time he made a save and he spent a good three to four seconds looking to his right when in reality the puck was 45 degrees to his left. And Eddie Olchek from NBC was very quick to look at that and realize what was going on and why he was losing the puck. And it was because of that glare. Then players were slipping on the ice constantly and falling so much so that they went into the first intermission. Cruz went out onto the ice to work on it, get it back up to shape. And the sun was melting the ice so quickly that they couldn't fix it. They had to postpone this game for nine hours and restarted it at midnight Eastern time, which was 9 o'clock p.m. local time in Lake Tahoe. Now, I remember when when this happened, I put the game on at midnight, but... I'm going to be honest. I didn't make it through that game. There were two periods of hockey left to play. I can guarantee that that game was not over until somewhere between 2 and 2.30 Sunday morning. Eastern time, of course. But the fact that that happened in the first game there obviously does not put a good taste in people's mouths about wanting to do that again. But it was a learning experience for the NHL. You know, it was something that had never been done before. And they learned from it. They were able to push the game back. They had lights prepared. And 
it turned out to be very exciting. And the game yesterday between Philadelphia and Boston went very well also. I mean, the backdrop of the ice rink was just absolutely beautiful. I mean, to go from seeing stadium, or not stadium, pardon me, arena after arena with tarps covering empty seats to looking up and just seeing the skyline of Lake Tahoe in the background, I mean, it felt like, I don't even know how to describe it. It didn't even seem real. That's how amazing it felt. It was like somebody took a hockey game that was going on in an arena and photoshopped it into Lake Tahoe. I mean, that's about what it looked like. And I was thinking about this last night, even some some Saturday. And it's very doable for the league, but I truly believe after the success that happened this weekend at Lake Tahoe that the NHL Winter Classic should be played there every year and it should permanently become the home of the Winter Classic. No more playing the Winter Classic in stadiums such as Heinz Field or PNC Park. You can save that for the stadium series. But something like the Winter Classic should be played at Lake Tahoe. I mean, obviously there are other outdoor areas in the United States that could probably have just as amazing of a background as Lake Tahoe did. But, I don't know. I'm very much a person that when I see something or do something that I like, I'm going to stick with it and I'm not going to change very easily. So for me, liking what happened this weekend at Lake Tahoe, I'm not going to be very susceptible to them changing it up and playing games somewhere else next year. And as I've said bef- as I said before, I truly believe the Winter Classic should be played there every year. And I definitely think it's something the NHL should look into. And I also liked that every team this weekend wore their reverse retro jersey. Which, again, is something I think that the league should consider as another tradition. You know, if you're going to play in this game, in what I hope would become the home of the Winter Classic, I mean, don't just wear your basic home jersey. Don't wear your basic away jersey. Don't even wear your alternate jersey that you occasionally wear six six to ten times a season. Go with something new and something different. And it worked out very well. 
especially the Vegas-Colorado game, seeing those reverse retro jerseys was incredible. I mean, Vegas with their scarlet red, it was different, but it was a very good different. Now, with the ice issues that happened after the first period ended, I want to credit Commissioner Gary Bettman because him, him, his ice crew, his communication to the teams, the head coaches, general managers, etc., was very well done, and it was done quickly and smoothly. And they were able to, within minutes, agree when to restart the game, which is something that I was very shocked by. You know, I heard they were going to postpone the game, and I was really questioning how soon they would be able to restart the game, not because of the teams, but because of the league. And for it to only be a basically a nine-hour difference was something that I was very happy to see. And this is a statement that I do not say lightly. It is also one that I never would have expected to say, but I would argue that over the last year, dealing with the pandemic and any other issues that they have had, Gary Bettman has been one of the best commissioners. I would say he's very close to being the best with the NBA's Adam Silver. And, as I said, he handled the COVID situation very well. They handled this ice situation at Lake Tahoe very well. I mean, I know there were a lot of people who hate Gary Bettman because of different things he's done in the past, the whole lockout issue from 2011. But, I mean, you've got to give credit where it's due. And Commissioner Bettman has done a very good job over the last year. Other leagues, such as the NFL, even the MLB, should really take note of the NHL's crisis management skills. Because particularly the NFL did a very poor job of managing COVID this past fall. I mean, there were, it was a very small percentage of positives that occurred throughout the season with the number of tests that they had done every single day. But, I mean, it just seemed like constantly every day there was someone new or multiple people new that were testing positive and had to miss multiple weeks of practice. 
or even games. And you don't, you didn't see that at all with the NHL's bubble because there were pretty much zero positive tests once they got into the bubble. And even with players testing positive this season, it's very minimal. I mean, there might be one here and there every four to five days, and that's it. So, again, major credit to the NHL. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. And when we come back, today's final segment featuring the Pittsburgh Pirates talking about O'Neill Cruz and an infielder signed to a minor league deal. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. Dream. 
welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for today's final segment featuring the Pittsburgh Pirates, starting with O'Neill Cruz. As it was mentioned by Benj Harrington just a few days ago in his press in his press conference with the media, that Cruz is going to be getting the majority of his reps this spring at shortstop, as that is what the organization still views him as and believe he can be very successful there. Now, I know I've mentioned it well in the past, but I'm going to bring it up again because it's important to this conversation. O'Neill Cruz is 6'6 and 175 pounds. That, for a shortstop, is a very large build, particularly with his height. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of shortstops that are 6 foot, 6 1, maybe even 6 2. But a lot of them, or the vast majority, are 5'11", 5'10", somewhere in that range. Because they thrive in that role with getting a lot of ground balls. And in sports that deal with balls going in the air or on the ground, those who are shorter do much better with balls on the ground. And those that are taller do much better with balls in the air, which is why there has been so much talk of moving O'Neill Cruz to the outfield because of his height and knowing what I just said, he would thrive so much better in the outfield. And so... Ground balls are only going to get harder for him to defend as he works his way through the minor leagues. I know in 2019 he spent much of his time in Altoona with a little bit of time at Indianapolis. So I'm not entirely sure where he will start the 2021 season, whether it be Altoona for a little bit before a quick promotion to Indianapolis or he will just start straight away in Indianapolis. But the ground balls that are going to be hit to him at Indianapolis are not anywhere close to what he got in Altoona because they're going to be much faster. And then when he gets to Pittsburgh eventually, they're going to be even harder than what he saw in AAA Indianapolis. Now, my thoughts about this are that I appreciate Ben Harrington giving him the opportunity to prove himself as a shortstop. You know, it doesn't make sense to move somebody from a position if they haven't shown that they can't handle it. And so far, Cruz has shown he can be a decent shortstop even at six foot six inches. But the biggest thing now going forward is going to be finding a way to 
keep Cruz at shortstop without limiting other shortstop prospects, whether it be Leover Piguero, even Juan Bay. I mean, there's so many shortstop prospects in the Pirates system that I didn't even mention there. But those two prove my point of, yes, you can keep him at short, but if you have somebody who's a better shortstop defensively, then you cannot play Cruz over them. And I think that's when you might see Cruz make the move to right field if and when that happens. But as of now, that the Pirates are committing to Cruz as a shortstop, it only strengthens their depth there and the competitiveness of that position. I mean, right now in the major leagues, you have Kevin Newman, Cole Tucker, Eric Gonzalez, who can all play short and are all primarily shortstops. Then in the system, you get O'Neill Cruz, Leover Piguero, G. Juan Bay, and I know Bay has been kind of converted to a second baseman, but he still has the ability to play short. But there's just so much depth there, and it's great to have. But can you utilize that depth so that one person consistently playing does not hinder the development of another? I think it's going to be very exciting to watch O'Neill Cruz play shortstop this spring. You know, we didn't get to see much of him last year with the exception of a couple late-inning games. Obviously, things got shortened with the pandemic shutdown. But the only real highlight of his was the long, towering home run that he hit early in spring training where his swing just looked so effortless. You never saw any defensive highlights. And that's what I want to see this season. Now, speaking of infielders, the Pirates signed another infielder on a minor league deal as a non-roster invitee to spring training. And this player is one that is very well known across Major League Baseball, Todd Frazier. So yes, the Pirates are going to have two Frasers on their team, assuming that Todd makes the opening day roster. Now, the real question is, are the Pirates going to put A. Frazier on the back of Adams' jersey and T. Frazier on the back of Todd's? Or are they just both going to say Frazier? That's going to be the kicker because if they both just say Frazier, if you're someone that doesn't see a number and instantly think of a player's name, you might want to learn their numbers because you will be very confused otherwise. But signing Frazier provides depth not only at first base, but also third base behind Colin Moran, and Key Brian Hayes. I mean, he's a veteran leader 
who can work very well with a young team like the Pirates are. And he still has a lot of pop in his bat. Whether he's coming in the game as a pinch hitter off the bench or whether he's in the lineup, he can do some damage with the bat in his hand. And it's just another great signing by Ben Charrington to add depth to this young rebuilding team. You need that veteran presence and he is obtaining that with Todd Frazier, Tyler Anderson, and multiple other signings this offseason. Now, my expected role for Todd Frazier is I think he will be a platoon with Colin Moran. You will see Colin Moran against right-handed pitchers and Todd Frazier against left-handed pitchers. Now, if Colin Moran can ever figure out how to hit against a left-handed pitcher consistently, then that may change. But until then, I think that is how they're going to do things. And then, of course, you'll see Frazier give Hayes some rest occasionally at third. But with as young and athletic as Hayes is, I don't really expect him to get too many off days. But it's still a great signing for the Pirates. And now the question becomes, what happens with Philip Evans? Because before Todd Frazier was signed, Philip Evans was the one that I had in mind as Colin Moran's backup at first base. And now that role will be presumably filled by Todd Frazier. Again, this is assuming Todd Frazier makes the opening day roster. If Todd Frazier doesn't make the opening day roster and has a terrible spring training, then this conversation is going to be irrelevant because Philip Evans will be Colin Moran's backup. But if both Evans and Frazier hit well, I mean, Evans is going to be someone that will get used pretty much everywhere, but you won't see him get too many reps at one particular position. Evans can play first base, second base, third base, left field, and right field. Now, I would not expect the Pirates to use Evans much in the corner outfield positions because, like Jose Osuna, he's a bit bulkier and not really having much speed will really put a damper on his performance in the outfield. But I would very much expect to see see him, see him, yes, yeah, see him at first, third, and second base. Apologize there for not being able to talk, but... I would expect to see Philip Evans at multiple positions in the infield. And again, that may happen whether Frazier makes the roster or not. But I would expect to see it more if Todd Frazier 
does make the roster rather than if he does not. Because if he does not, then Evans will slide in to that platoon situation with Colin Moran and primarily play first base. Which Evans played very well at first base last season for the Pirates. Obviously, until he collided with Gregory Polanco, in which ultimately ended his season. But prior to that, he performed very well. So, again, it's just another reason to tune into spring training this year. I know the regular season is going to be abysmal, and there's going to be times where you want to throw your TV across the living room because of the poor baseball that's being played by the Pirates. But, again, there's just so many subtle things to pay attention to this season that if you truly care about the team, you'll notice and be attentive of because these situations and these competitions are ones that could shape the roster for years to come. Thank you all for tuning in to the episode here today. Be sure to tune in on Friday as Bethany Athletic Director Steve Thompson will be making his second appearance on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Last time in November, we discussed season recap with the Chicago Cubs and the Pittsburgh Pirates. This time around, as both teams are in spring training in Florida and Arizona, we will be discussing off-season moves made by both teams, as well as a look into the future for this season in terms of team expectations. Starting at approximately 3.15, the first segment is going to be hockey talk. Primarily, now, if there is some big football news pertaining to the Steelers that comes out before Friday, then I'll find a way to squeeze that in with some hockey talk. But if not, expect 15 minutes of hockey talk, followed by 40 minutes, 45 minutes of Pirates Cubs baseball with Steve Thompson. This will be an episode you will not want to miss. So to be sure to tune in on Friday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.